Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In an effort to humanize incarceration, my conversation today is with Phil Melendez. Phil served 19 years, 11 months, and one day in prison for committing homicide when he was only a teenager. Phil's story begins with him trying to win the love and affection of his own father to no avail. Phil opens up with us for the first time to share the circumstances for the homicides he committed in an effort to ensure that nobody else takes the same path he did. In this conversation, Phil teaches us about the intricacies of what prison life is like and how for the first 15 years of his prison sentence, he was simply trying to survive. The remaining years, he shares the story of transformation and healing by meeting survivors of violent acts face to face. Phil discusses how most prisoners suffered from childhood trauma and were neglected by their own parents. This was a commonality that he noticed amongst all the inmates. He shares his story to start a conversation for healing, mercy, and forgiveness inside and outside prison walls. Currently, Phil is a pivotal member of Restore Justice, which is a nonprofit that brings together survivors, responsible parties, and community members to address harms, identify needs, obligation, and the underlying causes of crime and conflict. I hope this conversation gives you a different perspective on incarceration and how violence is very much a part of what it means to be human. We'll be using this episode to start a conversation on the Stories of Transformation group page on Facebook. If you aren't a member yet, please find us and request to be admitted. In this group, we hold meaningful conversations about the nature of the human condition, why we are the way we are, and how we can find grace and meaning in a world that is full of suffering. Okay, if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it far and wide. And without further ado, it's my pleasure to bring you Phil Melendez. Phil Melendez, welcome to the podcast. How are you today, sir? I'm feeling all right. I'm feeling all right. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited to talk to you here, Phil, because uh, your story of transformation is actually quite remarkable. You went to jail for on two counts of homicide, and I want to be really sensitive about this because I know you haven't really shared your story about how you actually committed this crime. I know you have an incredible story of redemption and really battling your demons, But I think for the purpose of this conversation, I think it'd be really great to kind of talk to you about how you got yourself to prison. Can you tell us about how you found yourself in a situation where you were committing homicide that led you to prison for life? So in October of 1997, I was notified that my dad had been stabbed while collecting a drug debt. And I was informed of who might have done it and where they might hang out. And you know, I was given an idea of, of where they are and, and who I can uh, see about this situation. And in the neighborhood, I had fellow gang members there telling me, like, what's going to happen? What are you going to do? This is crazy. They stabbed your dad. And, you know, I f- felt like I had no choice, especially given the lifestyle that I lived at the time and just the ideas that we had in, in, the, in the hood you know, something needs to happen or else I am going to be cast out of, of the only family that I thought cared for me. And so I felt it was my duty to go there and do something, anything. I went with a gun, wasn't sure if I was going to use it or not. I just knew that I was going to use it to intimidate, beat, and possibly kill, though. That was not uh, 
off the table. And so that night uh, I went there and terrorized a, an entire apartment building full of people. And, and one person had, had a rifle and was defending their home. And that's their right. And, you know, I have no, I'm not trying to minimize it or say that they pulled a gun on me for it. No, none of that. And so a gun battle ensued. And ultimately I ended up uh, killing two men and uh, pistol whipping uh, another person and just basically terrorizing the house. Okay, so as you were kind of going about this gun battle, like what sort of emotions would arise in you as you were going through it? Did you know that it was about survival? Like it was either them or you? How did you kind of process that moment as you were in it? I don't think I've ever been asked that question. Um, <clears throat> leading up to, so walking up to the house, just thinking back, I had a very dry mouth, racing heartbeat. I, I felt like it wasn't me. I don't know if, you, if that even makes sense. And like, again, again, too, I don't want to minimize anything and say that I was out of my mind. I'm just saying just as, as an experience, the experience itself, it felt out of body, but it was me. Like I said, I'm not minimizing and I take full responsibility and accountability, but it, it's such a weird feeling to have, to know that I'm here, that I'm, I'm yelling, I'm screaming and I'm scared. That's another thing too that people probably don't think of. Like it's, I was actually scared too, seeing the gun and being shot at too. That was definitely scary. I did feel like I had to leave. I needed to get out of there, and I'm, you know, shooting. We're shooting back and forth, and I found a pathway to to the door. I made my way out and, and, and just ran. And even then, still, it, it felt surreal. Like I'm running, and it's like, what have I done? What's just happened? Where am I going? You know, it was just, there were so many things going through my head, but most of it was was really just fear. And, and again, too, I brought this on myself. I went there, but I forced myself through this fear. And that's the, that's the bad part. That's something that I, I would hope people heed, you know, in the future to like, if you're feeling scared about something, don't do it. Just don't do it. Once you shot these two men and you killed them, had you realized what you had done? Like, did it actually sink in? Like, oh my gosh, I killed two people. At the time when I committed the crime, actually, even after, I wasn't sure, you know, where I had shot them or if they were dead, what was happening, if if I even shot them. I didn't know I shot two people. Um, I felt like I said, I, I felt like I shot one person for sure and wasn't certain about another, but... Um, you know, I got arrested and they told me, hey, we're arresting you for two counts of murder. And that's when I learned what really happened, like what I had really done. And it, it was it was a shock. I was, again, like the whole out of body feeling just, I don't know why out of body always happens, but it's, I think maybe just a coping mechanism. But I remember the officer telling me and it's just like sinking back, in, you know, in the back of that car seat, you know, with like a blank stare and shock. I felt a lot of shock. So that's really curious. So did they then take you directly to jail? And then were you then admitted right away to prison? Is that how it worked? They take you to prison. They, they question you. And then they process you into the, to the county jail. And so I think later that night, it took like from the morning all the way until the night for them to put me into the first cell that I was going to go into. When did it dawn upon you, Phil, that you were actually in prison and that this was going to be your life for the unforeseen future. Yeah, so that didn't happen until years later after I was convicted. Um, in the county jail, 
you'll you'll have a lawyer. You feel like you have a fighting chance. You you do what you can to come home. And I'll say this, and, and I'm sorry if it makes me sound very horrible, but I was a youngster and I followed the advice of my lawyer and we made up a false story about what really happened inside. And I bring this up because I always want to be accountable. I don't condone minimization at all. And I think being accountable and really looking at, at what was done in as much truth as, as possible is, is important for transformation. So in the county, I was fighting. And so I felt like hopefully I'll, I'll make it home. You know, maybe I'll, I'll win the trial somehow. I had one of the best lawyers in, in Sacramento and was hoping. But ultimately, at the end of the trial, I was convicted I was actually facing the death penalty when I first went in. Then they said, okay, we're, we're going to seek life without the possibility of parole. But ultimately, with the conviction that I had, charges that I was convicted of did not include the special circumstances in which I would have been eligible for life without the possibility of parole. So I ended up with 32 to life plus another 11. And that's when it hit me. The conviction was one thing. You know, they'll, they'll convict you on one day, and then maybe a month later, they'll, they'll take you back to court for sentencing. And even after you're convicted, it's like, dang, okay, they got me. But also, there's still another fighting chance. And so we're going to fight, we're going to fight, and, and we're going to go for the lowest sentence. But once the sentence was actually handed down on that last court date, 30 to life plus another 11, I was like, you know, that was the max. And um, it, was, that, it was then that I felt like, okay, I'm going to prison. And that is the end of my life. Um, you know, according to the law back then, nobody, uh, lifers weren't going home. We had um, governors who had stated that the only way a murderer is coming home is in a pine box. And so that was a political climate. And so I felt like that was it for me. Once that sunk in, how heavy did that feel? What exactly was going through your mind when that moment that it hit that you were going to be in prison for life? What exactly was going on in your mind? Well, I had a lot of pain, a lot of sadness, and a lot of fear. Uh, I think I even had suicidal thoughts, you know, not wanting to live through this. This is, it's, it's too much. One thing that I remember back in my first day in court was my mom screaming when they said that my crimes were punishable for death. And she screamed and she let out this gasp. And at that same gasp happened again at my sentencing. And it was like these cries and it was like, no. And, you know, it was, the, that's, that's, the, that's what came into my heart, that same pain, that same feeling, uh, the same feelings that I had, you know, envisioning my death, you know, in the gas chamber and, the, in the, you know, the death chamber and my mom screaming then. And, and th that was a lot of pain and grief and sadness, you know, that, that I experienced. And same thing happened when I was sentenced. And so it was very depressing. But at the same time, you don't even have time to grieve for yourself, you know, and, and you know, that's, it's, it's, you go into survival mode. You're like, okay, what's next? Now I got to go get transferred from county jail to prison. And there's, there's, there's a whole new world I got to learn there. Then going from the, um, the reception center and being transferred to the first prison that you're going to go to and stay at for a long time. That's also another environment. There's different levels. And so you have to learn the levels, you have to learn the lingo, you have to learn the people, you have to learn the politics. So there's really no time to grieve or to really like sit and think about anything really but survival. What exactly does that mean? And what does that actually look like in prison? What does survival in prison actually look like? Yeah, so survival in prison 
it involves a lot of clicking up, so to speak, joining gangs, making a choice, picking sides. Prison yards are very much like, what is it, the 40s, the 30s, 20s, you know, very segregated. And so, you know, the first thing you do is you go up to somebody and you show them your paperwork, which is, you know, a list of all your crimes so that they can establish the fact that you're not a child molester or a rapist because they will get beat um, off of the yard. That's how it was when I first went in. And so I was taught that in the reception center. So any, any race, any gang, you, that's what you do. You go to your crew, you establish where their headquarters are, so to speak, on the yard. And once the yard opens, you go out there and be like, hey, look, I'm so-and-so, I'm with this group, and here's my paperwork. They'll look at it. They'll have a discussion about, you know, for, for me, I was new, so there was no prior prison history that they needed to look at. But for some people, you know, they'll be like, hey, has he had good conduct on other yards? Or hey, is he an upstanding person within the parameters of prison politics? And so those things happen and you get cleared and you're, you're, you're good to go and you stay on the yard. You're taught about the history of the yard, what's going on, who's had problems recently, who's, uh, who has problems now, who do we need to look out for? Where are the knives? Do you want one? You know, all, all that stuff happens when you first go. And then for me, one of my survival techniques was to do some of the stuff that I did when I was young, which is to stand out and, and do horrible things to, to gain attention and acceptance. And for me, what I did, I volunteered to, to beat people up as needed because sometimes on prison yards, what happens is you'll have somebody who violates the, the, the code of conduct, the prison politics, and they'll need to be beat up or removed from the yard. And so I did that uh, multiple times. Me and, and one of my friends, we did five of these incidents, like back to back to back between the two of us. And, and that for me was survival. You know, being young and, and, you know, having to prove myself, I felt like I had to prove myself. And I think actually even not, not just, it wasn't just my own personal feelings and, you know, idiocy. I think it was actually something that was needed on the yard and felt because I was just so new and young. And so I did, and I proved myself. And then uh, after that, based on that, on that conduct, I, I don't condone it now, but back then it was very highly praised. And I was um, looked at as somebody who was, you know, down for the cause, so to speak. And so from there, people started asking me for, for my advice on things. How do we handle this? How do we handle that? And so I put myself, based on those actions, you know, and that survival technique, I put myself in a position to become like a young uh, OG, so to speak, like really quick. And so as far as that survival goes, it, it entailed people coming up to me constantly. Hey, Phil, here's a, here's a note under your door. Here's a note here. Look, this is happening. This is happening. What do we do? How do we approach this topic? What, what, how do we approach this gang and talk to them? And so, you know, it, it involved me talking to gang leaders, having gang summits, and, and really trying to keep the peace and, and understanding how we can have conflict but come away with a peaceful resolution to where everyone saves face it was it was a lot it was a whole bunch and it was very nerve-wracking to wake up every morning thinking like please don't let there be something can i just have some peace and it was it, that was not the case for a long time so for people on the outside that have never been to prison it's really hard to imagine this environment that you're talking about right like we've seen it in movies we've seen it in television but i think it'd be really helpful to kind of better understand what exactly are people fighting over? Are they fighting over 
territory in terms of the prison yard? Are they fighting over allegiance from prison guards? Like what exactly are some circumstances in which people and or gangs fight in prison? Yeah, sometimes it's territory. Sometimes it's tables. There are tables across every yard. Sometimes one race might not have a table and might feel like they deserve a table. And, you know, they might go about negotiations and and hopefully those negotiations go well. And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And so it's real estate. That's what we would call it sometimes. And it's just basically a small table with four seats around it, oftentimes, or a small picnic bench. But these are the things that people fight over sometimes. Um, then there's there's drugs. The drug business is, is um, very much alive in prison still. So sometimes people will have drug debts. And, you know, those become issues if people don't have money to pay. And, you know, as far as addiction goes, People are going to do what they can to get their drugs because, you know, they're addicted. They have this illness. And so that puts them in, in huge debt sometimes. And sometimes those debts are outside of your, your group, your gang, or your race. And so those have to be dealt with uh, through negotiations. Your gang will pay for it. Or if not, then your gang will beat you up. And then that's payment. They'll just say, hey, look, we'll just beat them up. And um, that's what happens. That's really interesting. Now, as it pertains to drug activity, as it pertains to violence, as it pertains to sexual activity, what's something that you could share about these elements of prison life that people on the outside just don't understand unless you're in there? Like, what's something that people on the outside just don't understand? Well, I would say honestly regarding sex. So on, on the yards that I was at, for the most part, any, any member of the LGBT community was not welcome. And so that's one thing that I'll say about prison in general, it's a very, very toxic, masculine place. It's stifling. I know for some, you know, I'm sure there were people who were gay or, or bi or maybe even wanted to be trans uh, people in prison, in these, these level four yards, but probably couldn't let it out and definitely would have been beat for these practices, which is terrible. Um, definitely don't condone that. But just looking back at it now and just even reflecting on your question, I never really thought about it till now. But um that's one, that's one thing that I learned. And then also, too, just learning when you put a group of toxic masculine people together who have a skewed idea of what a man should be and subscribe to these idiotic ideals of toxic masculinity, you're going to get a lot of violence. You're going to get a lot of posturing. And so that's one thing that I've learned a whole lot, especially going, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but just, you know, looking back at the, the anger management groups and the classes that I took later on and, and able to look back at this, it's something that is... It's widespread, and it's something that's sad and something that we very much need to change. Mm -hmm. Now, as you were in prison with a life sentence, Phil, how did you, in your downtime, keep yourself occupied so your thoughts wouldn't get the best of you? Like there's a saying that says, do the time, don't let the time do you. So how did you kind of keep your mind occupied so you wouldn't drive yourself crazy? Every morning, I would wake up and be like, damn. Please let it be a peaceful day. So those thoughts were rampant in my head all the time. And so big distractions were TV, were exercise, were reading. I learned about reading very, very quick in the county jail. I had nothing, you know, going in there and facing that death penalty and having that hanging over my head. They kept me isolated and segregated from the rest of the population for the first week or so. And so I learned that 
if I read, I can take my mind off of things. And so um, it helped, you know, when I was in the county, it helped when I was in the reception center, and it helped when I hit the, the higher level prisons. I would just read and read until I would fall asleep. And honestly, that's it's still the case. Like, even when I pick up a book these days, it puts me right out and puts me at ease. But that's one of the ways. That and exercise, um, you got to just tuck yourself out. Like, imagine having, you know, cages, barbed wire, concrete, violence all around you. Like, how do you sleep at night? How do you, it's, it's almost impossible. Like, just for the average person whose life is not that reality, I'd, I'd say, like, really think about that. Like, there's this, there's, there's all of that stuff I just mentioned and the fact that you're probably not going to go home and you're probably going to die here. And so that is, is something you got to escape from. And so, like, hours and hours on, on the yard with basketball, handball, working out on the bars, doing pull-ups and, and anything, uh, running track miles and miles just to, to get to the point where I, I can sleep. I, I know I'll be able to sleep. I remember going into my workouts thinking that, like, I have to do something. I have to I have to get so exhausted that I can sleep. And, uh, and if it didn't work, then I'd pick up the books. What did prison reveal to you about who you were? and who you are as a person. What did you learn about yourself while you were there? Prison revealed to me that my whole persona that I was trying to portray in my neighborhood to commit my crime, in prison to, to survive, that whole persona that I put on was, was fake. Prison showed me who I really was. And, you know, that took a whole lot of self-help and reflection. It took a whole lot of thoughts, I, even those thoughts of, prison survival. I remember feeling like, man, this ain't me. Like, you know, on one hand, people might say like, Phil, you were taking care of business in prison. You know, you, you did all this. But at the same time, I felt like I was barely scraping by. I didn't really know what I was doing. And so just looking back at that, looking back at the crime, looking back at the kid that I was, I was not supposed to be this. And I shouldn't have done what I did. And, and in the situation, everywhere that I showed up, I felt like I was being untrue to myself. And so years later, you know, I started taking self-help groups, learning about, as I said, toxic masculinity, learning about trauma, learning about everything that led me to commit my crime. And, and it showed me like how, how I got there and where I came from. And where I came from was a very, very sensitive child. For a lot of kids, a lot of kids have parents who deny paternity, parents who are neglectful, you know, and they don't commit the crimes that I did. And so for me, I realized that I am super sensitive and that I just need to really be cognizant of that fact and really understand what those emotions and, and traumas bring up in me, that is one huge thing that, that prison has taught me. And it's something that I think is one of the most important lessons in life is to just be true to who you are. But And that sounds good, but it, it really takes a whole, whole lot of unpacking to really understand who you really are. That's really insightful. Now, was there a specific moment while you were in prison where you realized like, okay, this certainly doesn't feel right? From what I've done in my research on you is that your daughter was coming to visit you while you're in prison. Did it have anything to do with her coming to see you while you're in prison? Like, how did this all kind of unfold? Yeah, so there's no one light switch. You know, people don't just like, hey, I'm going to be that good kid that I was supposed to be. And it's a, it's a number of things. And so my daughter definitely played a big role in that. Having seen her in the county, having her grow up without me, that was, uh, it was painful. And, and it showed me that I needed to be better. I, I, I needed to be better than, than my dad. 
even though I'm in prison. And so that did motivate me to do my best to, to stay out of trouble so that I can see her, so I can get transferred closer to home to see her and my mom, everybody. So family actually in general was, was a huge motivator to, to try to stay positive and, and, you know, don't commit suicide and keep on living and keep pushing through all of this. As far as the transformation goes, getting to San Quentin and getting into these groups, that was another level of, of transformation. Seeing people talk about their crimes in ways that were not glorifying crime, that was a huge shift. You know, San Quentin in, in itself was a, was a culture shock for me. As I mentioned with the, the paperwork, you know, showing my paperwork about my crime, I, I tried to do that when I got to San Quentin and people were like, oh, no, don't worry about that. Um, you know, and I was like, wow, that's weird and I, and and I didn't get it at first I was upset and I was like are we going to not do prison politics you know and uh, it took me a long time to to shed that whole idea of institutionalization so like that's another one you know shedding that idea and all of these things came off slowly and gradually and and I slowly started getting my my feet deeper in the waters into this these this transformational culture at San Quentin uh but the one thing that I will say cemented it for me and I I tell this story often and 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 I tell it because you know, for one, it's true and it is super powerful to me is when a survivor of crime came into the prison and she told her story about her mom uh, and, and the grief of losing her mom and the grief and the pain on her face. It, it broke me down. It broke down everyone in the group. For a lot of us, it was the first time we've heard from a survivor of crime. And for a lot of us, and I don't want to speak for everyone, but for me, it was the first time that I looked at my crime in a real way and really tried to acknowledge the fact that I did this to somebody, that this type of pain is, is what I've caused. And so that was a huge motivator for me to change it. And, and I was disgusted with myself afterwards. I was you know, in tears for the woman, in tears for the people that, that I've harmed. And basically disgusted with what I had done. And I think that's, pro- for me, I feel that's the right response for myself to really look at what I've done. And, and that forced me to dig deeper and push harder into these groups and really participate in them with, with my full heart and my full self. Phil, help us understand like how you went from prison to essentially finding freedom. How did that process all work for you? When I first came in, the governors were talking about not letting anybody home, or not letting anybody out. The parole boards were a joke. The hearings were jokes. People would refuse to go to them. I don't know how many people were like, oh, my parole board hearing is coming up. And people would say, oh, are you going to go? Like, nah, I'm just going to skip it. Like, that's your ticket home. Or that's one avenue for you to go home. But people were so convinced, and, and rightly so, that these hearings were jokes that they didn't even care to go. I think in 2009, there was, I forget, I don't know what the law was, but that's when lifers finally started having real shots at going home. And I saw two in a year and I was shocked and I was like, what? This is new. This is different. And so that gave me some hope and that started like leading the pathway to for people to come home. And then in, I think it was 2013, uh, Senate Bill 260 happened. And that gave a lot of people uh, hope. And what that did is say that if you were 17 or under when you committed your crime, you will have the opportunity to have time knocked off your sentence and have special consideration at the parole board uh, based on the hallmarks of youth, based on the fact that you committed your crime as 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 a child. And those hallmarks are based on brain science. The neural development is not fully complete 
until the age of 25, as that's what the neuroscience says. And so that changed a lot for people, for, for a majority of the people commit their crimes, you know, under the age of 25 because of that and because of that brain science. And so when that changed, I saw a lot of people going home and you know, that missed me by like a year and a half. And then I think in 2015 is when the next bill to amend that bill came about. And that was Senate Bill 261. And so in 2015, I think that was signed into law and it went into effect in 2016. That encompassed people in my age group. I was 19 when I committed my crime. It made my parole hearing eligibility like almost immediate. So, you know, I, I was scrambling to get my parole board packet, which is a, like a packet that we submit to the parole board with all of our writings, all of our insight, remorse letters, uh, parole plans. There's a whole uh, process to, to the parole board in preparation. And so I, I deeply immersed myself into that. And then just based on, on my life realizations, you know, the woman, the survivor of crime and, and what that did to me and, and my participation in the groups and the programs, you know, my transformation was real. I really unpacked all my traumas and really got to know my true authentic self. And I think all of those things kind of coalesced into a person who is suitable for pro in the eyes of the pro board. And I got to note, when it comes to the pro board, they have a lot of law enforcement backgrounds throughout the whole parole board commission. So for them to be able to say, we do feel like you're uh, no longer a threat to society and capable of being my neighbor. Like that's that's crazy. So I just want to put that out there. And, and they found me suitable. And I was released in, in September of 2017. That's great, Phil. Now, how many years in total did you serve in prison? 19 years, 11 months, and three days. Now, the day that you were freed from prison, help us understand what that felt like. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, you know, just looking back at everything I've just said, you know, as far as the the pain of the, the death penalty, the pain of my mom, the pain of the sentence, the fear, the not knowing, the prison politics, the danger, the realizations of the harm that I've caused, you know, and, and all of this, chronolo- I'm just saying it chronologically, but like just put it all together, right? Put all that pain, that hardship, the, the longing to, to be with family, you put all that together and you have this amazing feeling like it's done, like it's over, like this is all over, like I'm I'm free, like, you know, is, is it real? Like even now, I, I pinch myself right now just, just for fun, just to prove a point, but like for us, life, former lifers, we have a, an extreme gratitude and I think every day when we wake up, we don't forget, we don't forget where we were, we don't forget what we've done and that those realizations also make those the joys actually even happier too just the fact like man i was really there like that really happened and now i'm free and i can do this and i can do that and and having these freedoms it's 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 a beautiful feeling yeah i can only imagine phil i'd like to ask you one more question before we finish today what's your message for the world my message for the world is to dig deep into emotional intelligence really understand who you are Understand your feelings and emotions. Understand the sensations in your body that tell you when you're experiencing these things. Make sure that you give yourself a chance to breathe when things make you upset so that you're able to respond versus react. My message has always been about emotional intelligence. Teach it in the schools. Don't wait till we kill somebody to teach us how to not kill somebody. Be proactive about crime prevention, about wellness for for our children. 
because you know if you don't you know they're they're susceptible to to gangs they're susceptible to negative influences in the media if they're not able to know themselves they can't stand up for themselves you know what they say about if you don't stand for something you'll fall for anything and so standing for yourself is the first and foremost thing that people need to do and i think emotional intelligence is the key phil that's great thank you for sharing your story and thank you for the work that you do sir thank you Thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by Dana Drahos. Audio engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. We're grateful for all your support. And on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say... Thank you. Okay, see you next time.